All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 17. Fathers of American Medicine, part one. Robley Dunglison, Constantine Herring, Malcolm McFarlane, and Oscar Alice. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 45 minutes or so to learn about some folks from Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill who are considered the fathers of various aspects of medicine in the United States. Robley Dunglinson was born and educated in England, but recruited to be the first professor of medicine at Thomas Jefferson's University of Virginia, where he also became Jefferson's private physician. Later, he moved to Philadelphia and was recognized as the father of American physiology. Constantine Herring was born and educated in Germany. He learned the homeopathic methods of fellow countryman Samuel Hahnemann. He brought these beliefs with him to Philadelphia and is considered the father of homeopathic medicine in the United States. Malcolm McFarlane was born in Scotland, but he was educated in the United States where he served in the Civil War and upon returning to Philadelphia worked under Herring as chief of surgery and became the father of homeopathic surgery in the United States. Oscar Alice was born in the U.S. and educated here. He became the father of orthopedic surgery at Jefferson Medical College and invented a surgical instrument which is still used thousands of times daily around the world. As the center of medical education was shifting from Europe to America, these four men were masters of their craft. They are buried at either Laurel Hill Cemetery or West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Learn about them today on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, Fathers of American Medicine, Part 1. Even the casual student of American history knows that the third American president, Thomas Jefferson, and the second American president, John Adams, died on the same day, July 4, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Less known are Jefferson's final words and who heard them. Three men left written accounts of Jefferson's last days. Thomas Jefferson Randolph, Jefferson's grandson, Nicholas Trist, the husband of Jefferson's granddaughter, Virginia Randolph, and Robley Dunglison, 
the president's attending physician. Although there are some minor discrepancies, each seems reliable. Dunglison, Randolph, and Trist recall that Jefferson slept through the day on July 3rd and woke in the evening, evidently thinking it was morning. According to Dunglison, Jefferson asked on awakening, Is it the 4th? Dunglison replied, It soon will be. Dunglison says these were the last words he heard Jefferson utter. Although Jefferson lived to be 83, his health had been declining for several years. He was plagued by boils, especially on his buttocks, swollen legs, dropsy, painful joints, rheumatism, increasing deafness, and the side effects of the best medicines available at that time, which included heavy doses of sulfur and mercury, and diarrhea, intermittent copious diarrhea. For the last year or two of his life, he also developed severe prostate enlargement, enough to block the flow of urine. Dunglison, who was one of the few doctors whom Jefferson trusted, prescribed hollow elastic gum bougies, early catheters, which Jefferson learned to pass on himself to relieve the urinary obstruction. In those pre-germ theory days, this of course led to the introduction of bacteria into Jefferson's urinary tract, and he developed recurrent kidney infections. How did this young doctor, he was in his 20s at the time, gain the trust of one of the founding fathers? And how did he end up at Laurel Hill Cemetery? Robley Dunglison was born on January 4, 1798, in the English Lake District town of Keswick. His father intended for him to become a planter in the West Indies, where his uncle, for whom he was named, had extensive holdings. Instead, he started studying medicine when he was 17, apprenticing to a local surgeon. After a year in Keswick, he moved to London and studied under Dr. Charles Hayden for a year. Dunglison then went to Edinburgh to attend a course of lectures at the university, one of the top medical schools in the world. He then went to Paris, the other great center of medicine, and studied at the École de Médecine, along with some private courses. He returned to London in 1818. He passed his examinations at the Royal College of Surgeons of London and the Society of Apothecaries in London. He then finally obtained his medical degree from the University of Erlangen, writing his thesis in Latin, of course, and started his own practice at age 21 in 1819. He initially planned to specialize in the treatment of women and children, as he found general practice rather boring. Through his acquaintances, he became physician accoucheur to the Eastern Dispensary, one of the most extensive charities in London. His first book, published in 1824, was Commentaries on the Diseases of the Stomach and the Bowels of Children. It appears he was incapable of not teaching and began instruction about midwifery. His reputation became solidified as a practitioner and a teacher. In 1824, Thomas Jefferson and the Board of Visitors of the University of Virginia commissioned Francis Walker Gilmer to find professors in England for his new university. 
Gilmer offered the anatomy and medicine professorship to Dunglison. Jefferson obviously would have preferred a staff of all Native Americans, and he had considered offering the chair to Dr. Thomas Cooper, but objections were raised because of Cooper's religion. He was a Unitarian. Dunglison met the requirements of someone possessed of, quote, due degree of science, talent for instruction, and correct habits and morals. He was 26 years old and had just started on a London career with great promise. But he decided to make the leap to America. He took advantage of his promised $1,500 a year salary plus living quarters to propose to Harriet Leadham, 1802-1853, the daughter of one of his instructors. They were married in October of 1824 and sailed for the United States a short time later. The voyage, which would normally take four weeks, lasted 14 weeks, but they arrived in Norfolk in February 1825. He was the first full-time professor at an American university, making enough money from teaching so that he did not have to charge his students for lectures or open a private practice. Jefferson was immensely pleased with Dr. Dunglison and immediately engaged him as his private physician. The University of Virginia opened on March 7, 1825, with 68 students, 20 of whom took the subjects that Dunglison taught, physiology, pathology, therapeutics, medical jurisprudence, toxicology, obstetrics, and medical history. He lectured three days a week for two hours each day during 10 months of the year. His reputation as a practitioner brought him other famed patients, including the fourth American president, James Madison, 1751 to 1836, with whom he also became good friends and attended him during his last illness. Dunglison was also consulted in the care of the fifth American president, James Monroe, 1758-1831, but he did not become his private physician. And during a visit to Washington, D.C., he was requested to visit and consult on President Andrew Jackson, 1767-1845, who was suffering from severe pleuridynia, pain when breathing, probably from one of the bullets that he retained in his chest after being shot. Dunglison emphasized physiology over anatomy in his teachings, thus becoming known as the father of American physiology. His textbook, Human Physiology, published in 1832, went through several printings and became a standard text at all American medical schools. Some also call him the father of American medical history, as he was the first to teach this branch of the specialty. Other medical schools tried to hire him away, but he declined offers from Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia in 1829, Miami University Medical School in Ohio in 1830, and Jefferson again in 1831. Also in 1832, through his continued friendship with Jefferson's grandson by marriage, Nicholas Trist, 1800-1874, who was by now private secretary to President Andrew Jackson, 
He was invited to participate with Dr. William Beaumont, 1785-1853, in his experiments on gastric juice. During the winter of 1832-33, Dunglison visited Beaumont in Washington, D.C., and became involved studying his famous patient, Alexis St. Martin, 1802-1880. The fur trapper, who had survived a gunshot wound to the stomach with a gastric fistula that allowed Beaumont and Dunglison to perform hundreds of experiments concerning gastric physiology. In 1833, Dunglison published his famous New Dictionary of Medical Science and Literature, which sold 55,000 copies in his lifetime and was republished until 1897 when it reached its 23rd edition. His friends and students at Charlottesville started calling him the Walking Dictionary. In the same year, his wife's health started to fail and he opted to take a position at the University of Maryland, giving his introductory lecture in Baltimore on October 31, 1833. While in Baltimore, he published his book, Elements of Hygiene, which did not do as well as his earlier works. He also wrote for the Baltimore Medical and Surgical Journal and for the North American Archives of Medical and Surgical Science. Dunglison finally accepted a proposal from Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia dated June 24, 1836, the same year that Laurel Hill Cemetery was founded. He was to be chair of the Institutes of Medicine and Medical Jurisprudence. George McClellan, M.D., 1796-1847, Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section L, Plot 46, had in 1821 established a private medical school which became in 1825 the Jefferson Medical College of Philadelphia, where McClellan was professor of surgery until 1838 when he left to form the medical department of Pennsylvania College. Samuel McClellan, M.D., 1800-1854, Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 7, Plot 332, studied medicine with his brother George and became professor at Jefferson Medical College, 1828-1839, and Pennsylvania Medical College, 1839-1843. I will cover the McClellan brothers more thoroughly in the podcast Fathers of American Medicine, Part 2. When Dunglison arrived, there was considerable dissension among his fellow teachers, but he earned the nickname of the Great Peacemaker. He was instrumental in creating a cooperative faculty. He was the seventh and tie-breaking vote on many squabbles. He became Dean of the Medical College in 1854 and spent the rest of his career at Jefferson Medical College until he retired in 1868, studying, writing, and teaching. His activities were not limited to medicine. He advocated for the poor and insane, and especially for educating the blind. With William Chapin, 1802-1888, he edited the first Dictionary for the Blind, and worked in the 1850s to develop a raised type of printing to allow the blind to read after he visited a number of blind education schools in Europe. 
1844, Dunglison was elected to the Board of Managers of the Pennsylvania Institution for the Instruction of the Blind. Here, he became heavily involved with Judge John Kensink Kane, see the January 2020 podcast, and for a while, his son, Arctic explorer Elijah Kent Kane, see the June 2019 podcast, for whom he served as a medical mentor. Dunglison retired from all of his positions in 1868 when his illnesses prevented him from being productive. Robley Dunglison died in Philadelphia on April 1, 1869. Another good friend, Samuel D. Gross, 1805 to 1884, famed surgeon at Jefferson and subject of the iconic Thomas Eakins painting, The Gross Clinic, wrote about Dunglison in his autobiography. Quote, of all the colleagues, nearly 40 in number, with whom I have been associated, Robley Dunglinson was by far the most learned. His range of knowledge was almost encyclopedic. Dunglinson seemed to possess the happy faculty of discerning the needs of the profession, hence the unwonted success of his books. Dunglinson never wrote an unkind paragraph against any human being in or out of the profession. He shrank from acrimonious disputation, and he did all he could to discountenance and repress it. He was eminently a man of peace, a gentleman in all relations of life, with a heart full of the warmest sympathy for all living creatures. Dunglison died on April 1, 1869, after six months of the most cruel suffering. During nearly all of this time, he was confined to his bed, propped up by pillows with his feet resting on the floor. He could not lie down even for an hour. He had long been the victim of heart disease, and no one could witness his distress without the deepest sympathy. Yet no murmur escaped his lips. At times, indeed, he was cheerful, although he knew that he was a doomed man. As a lecturer, ready, fluent, entertaining, and instructive, Dunglinson had few equals. As a husband, father, brother, neighbor, friend, there never was a kinder or better man. In all the relations of life, he was a model. As a profound medical scholar, ages will probably elapse before the profession will have another Dunglinson. End quote. He was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section B, Plot 106, next to his wife on April 4, 1869. This plot had been presented to him some years before by the cemetery founders, all of whom he knew on intimate terms. Quote, the gift being probably suggested by an article on rural cemeteries, which I wrote for the American Medical Intelligencer, for July 1st, 1837, of which I was editor." End quote. One of his sons, John Ropley Dunglinson, 1829-1896, became a war correspondent, editor of the Reading Daily Times, and then private secretary to Pennsylvania Governor John W. Geary during his term. Just a week after his father's death, the young Dunglison attacked former Representative A.R. Schofield on the Capitol grounds at Harrisburg, stabbing him in the neck 
with a pocket knife after a verbal dispute. I could find no resolution to this story. Another son, Richard James Dunglison, M.D., 1834-1901, Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section N, Lot 44, graduated from Jefferson Medical College in 1856. During the Civil War, he served in the Union Army and eventually became executive officer of the Filbert Street United States Army Hospital, 23rd and Filbert. After the war, he became one of the founders of the Philadelphia Medical Times. Robley Dunglison, M.D., the first of our fathers of American medicine. If you go to Google and ask, who's the father of American homeopathic medicine? It will immediately tell you Constantine Herring with one R. Did he invent homeopathy? No, that honor goes to Dr. Christian Friedrich Samuel Hahnemann, 1755-1843, born in Saxony and interred with a magnificent monument at Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. But Hahnemann never set foot in the United States. Well, then, did Herring introduce homeopathy to the country? Nope. That was done in 1825 in New York by Hans Birch Graham, a student of Hahnemann. This Hans Graham, by the way, is no relation to the Dutch-born Hans Christian Graham, who invented the Graham stain in 1884. How about the first to practice in Pennsylvania? No, that honor goes to Dr. Henry Detwiller. 1795-1887 of Easton, Pennsylvania, who on the 23rd of July, 1828, made the first homeopathic prescription in the state. Detwiller was born in Switzerland and had arrived in Pennsylvania in 1817. Well, then did Herring found Hahnemann Medical School? Well, sort of. But Hahnemann Medical School wasn't even the first homeopathic teaching institution in Pennsylvania. Constantine Herring, MD, the father of homeopathy in America, was born on January 1st, 1800 in Oschatz, Saxony in Germany. In 1817 he began studying medicine at a surgical academy in Dresden and by 1820 was enrolled at the University of Leipzig. During his studies there, he researched homeopathy in order to write a book disproving it. But he became intrigued and eventually a convert. He accidentally cut his finger during a post-mortem examination and soon developed infection and then gangrene. He knew that untreated, this would probably lead to sepsis and death. The standard of care was amputation of the injured part before the infection spread. Herring refused amputation. He did research in homeopathy from Hahnemann's texts. He applied its principles, saved his finger and his life, which he then decided to dedicate to the tenets of Hahnemann. Now there are three principles to the practice of homeopathy. First, similia similibus curentur, or let like cure likes. This concept actually dates back to Hippocrates. It was codified by Hahnemann with various experiments called provings on himself and healthy volunteers called provers. Over the years, by means of provings, 
toxicological data and clinical experience, the homeopathic drug pictures of more than 2,000 substances have been derived. The second principle is minimum dose. Hahnemann noted that his treatments produced cures but also produced side effects. To minimize side effects, he came up with the concept of potentization, a series of dilutions. At each step, there is a vigorous agitation of the solution called succussion until there is no detectable chemical substance left. As paradoxical as that may seem, the higher the dilution, the more potent the homeopathic remedy. Maximum therapeutic effects with virtually no side effects, and of course safe for all, including babies, pregnant women, and seniors. The third principle of homeopathy is the single remedy. Prescribe only one remedy at a time, matched exactly to the symptoms of the sick person. The proper medication is chosen only after detailed, comprehensive interview to determine the physical, psychological, and emotional characteristics of that individual, the so-called case-taking. Now, to the contemporary ear, this sounds a lot like magical thinking. And traditional physicians push homeopathy off into the corner of pseudoscience, along with acupuncture, crystals, and supernatural energies. But don't forget, at this time, so-called traditional medicine almost certainly did more harm than good. Common treatments included bloodletting, purges, poisonous drugs like calomel, which led to mercury poisoning, or worse yet, gangrene of the mouth, and arsenic in the form of arsphenamine and salversan, which could lead to coma and death. Non-toxic treatments taking advantage of a placebo effect looked pretty good compared to traditional medicine. Another principle of homeopathy is one that can be learned by allopathy, or what we now call science-based modern medicine. By the way, the term allopathy was actually coined as a pejorative by Samuel Hahnemann in 1810. It was a description of heroic medicine based on the belief that disease is caused by an imbalance among the four humors, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. Homeopathy requires that the first visit with a practitioner takes several hours while a complete history of the patient and their symptoms is recorded. It has been demonstrated many times that simply listening to a patient carefully has a very powerful therapeutic effect. According to newspaper accounts of the day, homeopathy was successful. During the cholera epidemic of 1849 in Cincinnati, patients treated with traditional therapies had a survival rate of about 50%. With homeopathy, it was 97%. During the worldwide flu epidemic of 1918, more than a half million people died in the United States. Survival with conventional medicine was 70%. It was 98% with homeopathy. There were many, many other examples of similar survival rates. Herring became a practitioner of homeopathy and was a great advocate for Samuel Hahnemann. 
He graduated from the University of Würzburg in 1826 as a doctor of medicine. He then spent the next seven years in South America researching zoology and botany, but he continued his homeopathic medicine at hospitals and a leper colony. In July 1828, Herring and his first wife were in a camp on the upper Amazon River when the natives brought him a living Lachesis trigonocephalus, or lance-headed viper, a bushmaster, the most poisonous of their snakes. Herring cautiously opened the box, struck the snake in the head, and used a forked stick to remove it, and he pressed out the poison, which he started diluting. He used this supply of poison for many years as his remedy for snake bite and other maladies which had symptoms similar to snake bites. When he immigrated to the United States in 1833, he brought the dead snake with him. It is preserved in the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, now known as the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University. When Herring came to the United States, he opened his own medical practice in rural Pennsylvania. That same year, he founded the Hanumanian Society of Philadelphia. There were 10 physicians practicing homeopathy in the city at the time. In 1835, along with several other doctors, he founded the North American Academy of Homeopathic Medicine in Allentown, the first homeopathic medical school in the United States. At that time, homeopathy was practiced only in New York and Pennsylvania. Herring's plan was to teach the principles for homeopathy in the original German, a language requirement necessary for admission to the school. By 1840, graduates of Allentown had carried these principles to 16 states, but the Allentown Academy closed in 1842. The Homeopathic Medical College of Pennsylvania opened in 1848, followed by Hahnemann Medical College in 1867. The two schools merged in 1871, and in 1877, Hahnemann Hospital opened at the northwest corner of 8th and Poplar. It moved to North Broad Street in 1883, three years after Herring's death. In 1877, the Pennsylvania Homeopathic Hospital for Children was founded in West Philadelphia with Annis Pulling, Mrs. William Henry Furness, 1802-1885, serving as president and Herring as consulting physician. In January 1886, it was merged with Hahnemann Hospital, and a ward was established in honor of Annis and her daughter-in-law, Helen Kate, Mrs. Horace Howard Furness, 1837-1883, which became known as the Mrs. Furness Ward. Both Furness women are buried with their husbands at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section T, Plot 7. Constantine Herring was the most powerful factor in the growth of early American homeopathy. He was a physician, poet, scientist, naturalist, psychologist, scholar, and author. Reaching America just at a time when there was need of someone to organize the few men who were practicing homeopathy and to find methods to spread the new medical doctrine, Herring was able to accomplish all these things. He published several scholarly journals, 
including the American Journal of Homeopathy, 1835, and the Philadelphia Journal of Homeopathy, 1852. He wrote several books as well, including The Logic of Homeopathy in the 1860s. Now, here's something else that Constantine Herring did. In 1834, he caused quite a stir in his neighborhood when over his shoulder he brought a fir tree from New Jersey into his house at Christmas time and then decorated it with fruits, candies, gifts, and candles, just as he had done growing up in Germany. It is now acknowledged as the first Christmas tree in Pennsylvania. This was 16 years before Sarah Josepha Hale, 1788-1879, Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section X, Plot 61, who was editress, her word, of Godey's Ladies Book, started promoting Christmas trees as an American tradition based on her admiration of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's tree. Herring lived his last years in a large house between Arch and Cherry on the west side of North 12th Street, numbers 112 and 114. It's now part of the convention center. He was a very firm admirer of Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, a Swiss physician better known as Paracelsus, who lived from 1493 to 1541. Herring made a collection of his works over 50 years, which became one of the largest in the world. It is currently housed in a fireproof safe at the Drexel University College of Medicine Legacy Center. Herring continued practicing homeopathic medicine until his death on the evening of July 23, 1880, at age 80, apparently of an asthma attack, although his death certificate says, quote, paralysis of the heart, end quote. As a retired physician, I have no idea what that means. He married three times. The first time was in Suriname, where she died and left him with one son who resided there the rest of his life. His second marriage was in Philadelphia, and they had three children. In 1838, he married in Germany for the third time to 16-year-old Therese Buchheim, 1822-1915, the daughter of a celebrated physician. With her, he had eight children, of whom six were alive at the time of his death. He was initially interred at North Laurel Hill Cemetery in a plot donated by one of his patients, but his son bought a family plot at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Washington Section, Plot 330, where he lies today. Our third father of a branch of American medicine is also an immigrant. Malcolm McFarland was born on June 8, 1841, in Elderslie, Renfrewshire, Scotland. At the age of five years, Malcolm and his parents came to New York City, where his father established a large silk factory. In 1856, McFarland entered the College of New York for three years, but dropped out because of an attack of typhoid fever which prostrated him for many months. On regaining his health, young McFarlane entered his father's factory as a bookkeeper, but he only stayed for two years. He was not happy as a businessman. He decided to study medicine, so he attended clinics and lectures in New York. But in 1862, and initially unknown to his family, 
He joined the Union Army and acted as a hospital steward and druggist at the large hospital at Camp Curtin near Harrisburg. When that hospital was decommissioned, he began a peripatetic journey through military medical hospitals all over the East Coast and South. He was first sent to the surgical hospital at Wilmington, Delaware, where he served as dispensing druggist. This gave him access to all the surgical operations which he studied carefully. From Wilmington, he went to Baltimore, and then to New York City, where he attended a course of lectures given at Bellevue Hospital Medical College. In February 1864, he passed a competitive examination before a regular army board for the position of medical cadet, United States Army. He also attended clinics at the College of Physicians, several large hospitals, and at Ward's Island. From New York, he was ordered to Lavelle General Hospital, Portsmouth, Rhode Island, which was named after the 8th Surgeon General of the U.S. Army, Joseph Lavelle. As an assistant there, he was present at every important surgical operation performed during his eight months of service. At his own request, McFarland was transferred to Knight General Hospital, New Haven, Connecticut, where he witnessed both public and private practice of prominent attending surgeons. Having matriculated and attended lectures, he received his M.D. degree from the Medical Department of Yale College in 1865. His examination was conducted by the faculty and delegates of the State Society, who awarded to him the Hooker Testimonial, a case of surgical instruments as a reward for his scholarship and performing the best examination. He now became acting assistant surgeon before the board in New York City. The board's president, Surgeon H.B. Wirtz, United States Army, sent him to New Orleans, Louisiana, and then to Barrancas, Florida, where he served under General Frederick Steele and was present at all the important engagements and many minor attacks. His final military assignment was at Fort Morgan as the sole quarantine officer commanding the entrance to Mobile Bay. Here he performed the hazardous duty of boarding and inspecting vessels from infected ports. In August 1866, while attending patients from Havana on board the Clio, he was seized with yellow fever and again came very close to dying. In June 1867, Dr. Malcolm McFarland left the service and received high commendations from all the officers under whom he served. Now, while he was at Fort Morgan in Alabama, he had become interested in homeopathy. He read Hahnemann's Organon. Having started his career as a dispenser of standard drugs, he did a complete turnaround and became a scholar of potentized drugs. When he fully recovered from yellow fever, he moved to the home of homeopathy, Philadelphia, and was appointed professor of surgery in the Homeopathic Medical College on September 10, 1867, on recommendation of the faculty. He was 26 years old. He established the first surgical and operative clinic at any homeopathic medical college, becoming the father of homeopathic surgery. He conducted free clinics twice weekly, which augmented the usefulness and influence of the college within the community. When homeopathic medical college 
and the Hahnemann Medical College merged in 1869. He was appointed professor of clinical surgery in the new institution. His surgeries covered the complete depth and breadth of the subject of surgery. Over a five-year period, he published case reports of about 400 surgical operations. They were performed both at the college and in private practice, including ovariotomy eight times, cataract extraction 27 times, hernia repair 25 times, cleft palate repair, rhinoplasty, sinus repair, etc., etc. Dr. McFarland demonstrated that in the major operations, dynamized medicines by controlling erysipelas, fever, and other typical sequences in surgery lessened the mortality rate and made recovery possible in otherwise fatal cases. As a lecturer, he was popular, brief, practical, and to the point, given to action rather than to words. In practice, he used single and dynamized medicines. McFarlane was the first to conduct regular provings of high potencies by his plan of giving them frequently in water until they produced unmistakable and violent effects. In 1869, Dr. McFarlane married Miss Hannah Dick, daughter of John Dick, the best-known florist in Philadelphia whose tombstone is one of the first to greet visitors passing through the gatehouse at Laurel Hill Cemetery. McFarlane was held in such esteem by his students that he was chosen to deliver the address to the 25th graduating class from Hahnemann on 10 March 1873. He was only 32 years old, but full of wisdom. Many things he said that day still apply to medicine. Quote, Practice your art for your art's sake, rather than for the pecuniary reward it may bring you. It is your duty never to refuse attendance when you are called to render it to those who are too poor in this world's goods to recompense you. Avoid that unmanly spirit which would fawn upon the rich and disdain the poor. Don't walk into a sick chamber like an animated tombstone. Don't sit by the bedside of your patient with a solemn face as if you'd come to measure him for the coffin. Take his hand as a friend before you feel his pulse as a physician. Say a few words which may lead him perhaps for a moment to forget his ailment and calm the excitement which your entrance may have produced. If your patient be of the gentler sex, Never let your breath be tainted with the vile fumes of tobacco, nor yet viler odors of the still. End quote. Two of Malcolm's brothers, Duncan and John, were physicians. Two of his sons also became physicians. Douglas McFarlane, 1886-1966, was a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, who served as an army doctor in France during World War I. He was a founder of the Lower Marion Historical Society in Pennsylvania and a nationally known expert on the treatment of deafness. He shared medical offices at 1805 Chestnut Street with his brother Douglas, 1885 to 1968, also a physician. Malcolm McFarland lived out his days at the family estate, Eldersley, on Church Street in Ardmore. He died at age 80 in 1921 
and was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section M, Plots 120 and 121. When his sons died, they joined him. His wife, Hannah Dick McFarlane, had died in 1913, and they are within a stone's throw of Hannah's mother and father. Malcolm McFarlane, our third father of American medicine, the father of American homeopathic surgery. Oscar Huntington Alice, our fourth father of American medicine, was born in the United States on the 9th of September, 1838, in Holly, New York. He obtained his A.B. in 1864 and his M.A. in 1865 from Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. In 1866, he graduated from Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia and took internship at Philadelphia General Hospital. In 1871, Alice became the original staff surgeon at Presbyterian Hospital of Philadelphia, now Penn Presbyterian Medical Center. While there, he made two major contributions to medicine. The Alice inhaler, at the time a safer and more convenient way to administer general anesthesia with ether or chloroform to surgical patients, and the Alice forceps, which is well known and still used by surgeons today. The Alice forceps or clamp is a surgical instrument with sharp teeth and locking arms. It's used to hold or grasp heavy tissue. And since it can cause crush injury, it's usually used in tissue which is about to be removed. Now, gynecologists have discovered that when it was used to grasp the cervix to stabilize the uterus, such as when inserting an IUD, or in the bad old days of doing a coldocentesis, an Alice clamp causes less bleeding than the more commonly used tenaculum. In 1885, Alice was elected to Jefferson College Board of Trustees. During the same period, he became teacher of orthopedics at Jefferson, a fellow of the Academy of Surgery, and a member of the American Surgical Association. Pediatricians still use Alice's sign, which is also called Galeazzi's sign, to assess for hip dysplasia. It is performed by flexing an infant's knees when they are laying down so that the feet touch the surface and the ankles touch the buttocks. If the knees are not level, then the test is positive, indicating a potential congenital hip malformation. Alice received the Samuel Gross Prize and $1,000 from the Philadelphia Academy of Surgery in 1895 for his study and publications on reduction of hip dislocations. In 1902, he was one of the first surgeons to describe successful bowel anastomosis. To this day, bowel surgeons use Alice clamps while performing this procedure. In the same year, a Philadelphia newspaper called him the father of orthopedic surgery at Jefferson College. He was so well respected throughout the medical community that he received an honorary LLD from Lafayette University in 1909. On the 24th of October, 1877, Alice had married Julia Thompson, 1843 to 1912. One of their children, Oswald Thompson Alice, 1880 to 1973, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section S, lots 112.1 and 114.3, 
became a famed scholar and teacher of the Old Testament and co-founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. On the 15th of April, 1912, the day of the sinking of the Titanic, Julia died. Nine years later, on the 16th of May, 1921, Oscar Alice, M.D., LLD, died at his home at 1604 Spruce Street of cerebral hemorrhage. He was 85 years old. Three days later, he was interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section T, Plot 224, next to Julia. Oscar Huntington Alice, the fourth of our fathers of American medicine, the father of orthopedics at Jefferson Medical College. Again, I want to remind you of something that you will put on your calendar when things open up again. It's featured at the Laurel Hill Cemetery Museum. Their legacies, the women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. It's an exhibit that celebrates achievements of 16 women buried at Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. This exhibit is just one way that the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. I've talked about several of these women in prior podcasts. Now, when this exhibit reopens, it will be on display Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. The museum is just across from the office at the gatehouse of Laurel Hill Cemetery. The exhibit will run through the end of the year. It's free. It's open to all who are interested. But donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are always greatly appreciated. Next time in the September edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, I will talk about father and son sculptors. Alexander Milna Calder and Alexander Sterling Calder, buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and two of their best-known works, the William Warner Plot and the Charles Henry Lee Plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge in Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Or you can come from the Pencoid Bridge on your bicycle or on foot across the Schuylkill River. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and the four-wheel variety. But until we open up again for live tours, keep your eye out for online Zoom tours conducted by some of our experienced guides. Find out about them at our website. 
Here's something else to satisfy your curiosity. LaurelHillCemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. Find out what you need to know at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries, and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stay safe, stay well. Stick around if you want to hear my references for this show. I had a lot of references for this, but fortunately there was a lot of information in just a few of them. For Robley Dunglinson, your best bet if you can get a copy is Robley Dunglinson, MD, 1798-1869, American Medical Educator. It's by Samuel X. Redbill, R-A-D-B-I-L-L, M.D. Initially published in the Journal of Medical Education, Volume 34, Number 2, February 1959. Now, most of that information comes from the much longer autobiographical Anna of Robley Dunglinson, M.D., a 212-page missive published by the Transactions of the American Philosophical Society, Volume 53, Number 8, 1963. I'd never heard the term Anna before, A-N-A. It's, uh, it's not used much anymore, but it is an autobiography that is based on many things, on personal papers, on personal writings, on diaries, on interviews. Uh, it's an interesting term. Perhaps it should be revived, Anna. The best information on Constantine Herring comes from a paper called The Conversation Talks Life and Times of Herring by Calvin B. Nair, K-N-E-R-R. Nair was Herring's son-in-law, so he had access to many private musings and papers that he used in his 200-page tome that I combed through. Uh, Malcolm McFarland's information came from his obituary published by Yale University and from Cleve's Biographical Cyclopedia of Homeopathic Physicians and Surgeons. It was written by Egbert Cleve, published in 1873. It is available online if you search for it. As far as Oscar Alice, spelled A-L-L-I-S, by the way, I have actually seen it in medical journals spelled A-L-I-C-E by people who don't know the proper way to spell it. My sources were mostly online information from Jefferson Medical College, contemporary medical journals, his own publications, some newspaper articles, and then Oscar Huntington Alice, 1836-1921, by Alice O.H., McReynolds, R.P., Diseases of Colon and Rectum, Volume 29, pages 776 to 779, November 1986. Oscar Alice did not even have a Wikipedia article. However, I did add his biography, because there is a Wikipedia page on Alice Clamp. So if you go to Alice Clamp and you see the biography of Oscar, that's me. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay well.